0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, BC led the country and at first introduced the carbon tax in 2008. But with Prime Minister Trudeau announcing a three-year pause on the federal carbon tax, is this the beginning of the end for carbon policy in our country? BC United leader Kevin Falcon drops by. Plus, how do we address climate change when the politics of the carbon tax is so polarized? Former Premier Rachel Assange joins us. Plus, too much government. Metro Vancouver is currently governed by 23 local authorities. We continue our series The Next Million and look at how to best govern a region when the population hits just under 4 million by 2050. Christy Clark drops by. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. It's Tuesday, October 31st. Welcome to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Happy Halloween, whether you're home or heading home. Thanks for joining us on the show today. A reminder as well to take extra caution out there on the road with many trick-or-treaters out there. We've got lots to talk about today. At 4 o'clock, we continue our series, The Next Million, as we look at the challenges of adding, adding another million people to the region by 2050. Today, we look at how we should govern the region, considering we have 23 authorities running the region with two point eight million people. Is that still the right way to go when our population is 3.8 million by 2050? That's at 4pm. But first, let's focus on our top story and look at the carbon tax. Now, on paper, economists generally agree that imposing a price on carbon has to be an integral part of any plan to cut emissions. Then, of course, came last week. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau surprised many, saying Ottawa will pause the federal carbon tax on home heating oil in Atlantic Canada, Ontario and the Prairie Provinces. Now, the Trudeau government's carbon tax was being blamed for significant unhappiness in the Atlantic Provinces, where the federal policy was introduced earlier this year to replace a patchwork of inconsistent uh, provincial policies. Now, the repercussions of that announcement last week are profound. And and since last week, it's driven debate um, in this province and many other provinces. Provinces across the country as well. The BC NDP is now facing pressure to reduce the provincial carbon tax. Uh, Home heating oil uh, is less common here in BC than other parts of the country. In fact, only 1.8 percent of British Columbians uh, use home heating oil. That's still 39,000 BC households, though. Now, the carbon tax, when it was brought in by 2008, was supposed to alter behavior. What Trudeau's announcement certainly to this host says it acknowledges cost is indeed becoming a financial burden to average Canadians. and by boosting the rebate, the government seems to admit its plan was not revenue revenue neutral. Well, today, Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United, said he would eliminate the provincial fuel tax, currently at about 15 cents per litre on gasoline and diesel, and remove the carbon tax on all home uh, heating fuels as well. Mr. Falcon spoke to the press earlier today. Take a listen.
1: We held it at $30 a ton, recognizing that we had to think about the affordability and the impact on British Columbians government today has lost the plot and they've taken away, the returning the dollars to uh, British Columbians, the tax shift portion, they've now turned it into a tax grab and they now are marching that up to levels which will be devastating for families in British Columbia and I cannot support that. When circumstances change and you see the impacts it's having on people and importantly you also do not see reduced emissions resulting from it, that's when you've got to pivot and look at other things that we can do to achieve better outcomes.
0: That was Kevin Falcon speaking earlier today. He's BC United leader and he joins us now. Mr. Falcon, thank you for joining us. And Thanks for having me. So I apologize for the long introduction, but I think it's such a complex issue. We do need to sort of uh, agree on some facts at the end of the day. Your party introduced at the time uh, the carbon tax in 2008. Was that a tough decision today to come out and say, look, we are going to somewhat argue eliminate certain parts of the carbon tax, but also halt it at where it's at right now?
1: Well, sure, of course, because when we introduced it uh, back in 2008, I was very proud of that. Uh, it was at $10 a ton uh, back in the day. Mm-hmm. You may recall the NDP actually fought against it, fought an election campaign against Ax it. the tax is what they the called tax. it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we we marched it up to about $30 a ton. And then when I was finance minister in 2012, I actually said, we're freezing it at $30 because we were seeing reduced emissions, but I didn't want to have the increase cause paying for families and at that rate literally it was six cents a liter for gas so that meant if you filled up a typical 35 sorry 75 liter gas tank you're paying about five bucks the problem we have now is it's more than doubled under this NDP so you're now paying 14 cents a liter and they're going to double it again to 37 cents a liter um, that's almost you know 30 just in the carbon tax for your increase or sorry for filling up your tank and what I've said is, look, at a time when we're seeing families really, really struggling, um, this just isn't acceptable. People aren't prepared to have to pay that price, especially when they're not seeing emissions reductions. So what we announced today was basically four quick things, mm-hmm. if I could quickly. Eliminate the provincial fuel tax permanently. That's 15 cents a litre, depending on where you live. Secondly, end the uh, EB's future uh, planned tax hikes on carbon tax because they want to double it again. That's not affordable. Three, it's got to come off of a home heating. If the Prime Minister has appropriately given flexibility in the East Coast to say, you know what, we're not going to charge it to you folks because we want to give you a break, well, that should absolutely apply to British Columbia, whether you're on home heating oil or whether you're on natural gas. has got to be a level playing field. And finally, uh, we've also said the carbon tax should not apply to our farmers, ranchers and agricultural sector because that's driving up the cost of food that we eat off our plates and we buy in grocery stores. So all four of those things would make a dramatic tax relief for a lot of British Columbians.
0: Okay, and I understand where you're coming from there. Now, when I said the, off the top here that you know economists would generally agree that you impose a carbon tax, it's part of the integral part of of, of- cutting emissions, which would mean changing behavior. In the last two weeks on this show, we did a segment on General Motors not being able to hit their 400,000 EV target for mid-2024, where basically they're saying that we 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 are selling EVs, but at a much slower pace, because the folks that who can afford the $60,000, $70,000 EVs have already bought them, and the uptick now it's a lot slower. Yes, they're increasing, but at a much slower pace, so we're not going to be able to hit our targets. At the same time, you have Exxon and Chevron, both double down purchasing other fossil fuel companies i think the purchases combined were about 120 billion dollars in other words fossil fuel companies are betting on fossil fuel companies we know um, climate change is real so it, based on that context in regards to carbon tax was supposed to change behavior a do you think it's changed behavior and two why not just eliminate carbon tax because if it's many people would argue it's not changing behavior technology is what we should be focusing on not the behavior side
1: yeah, well, I was asked this question at the press conference. They said to me, you know, Kevin, if two years from now there's a federal election and the government of the day uh, says we're getting rid of the carbon tax, what does that mean for B.C.? And I said, listen, I'm not going to allow us to be disadvantaged. I mean, the only jurisdiction that at that time we'd be paying almost $100 a ton in carbon tax, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be the only jurisdiction having our residents pay carbon tax. So if it goes federally, it goes provincially. And I'll tell you this, it's not because I don't think carbon tax can be part of a solution for dealing with climate change, but I can tell you this, it can't be on the backs of British Columbians. Right now you've got people literally, I hear this from the grocery stores, people are buying far less vegetables and buying far more processed food to try and save costs for their family. You've got seniors that are having to make decisions about, you know, um, whether they can afford a meal. They're literally going to food banks now trying to, to make ends meet. And in that climate, You cannot have a government that says, we don't care, we're just going to continue to ratchet up the cost of of carbon tax, which is what the provincial NDP is going to do. They want to double it again in the next seven years. It's not acceptable. I just
0: want to to, to confirm this from you at this point. If Pierre Polyev is elected prime minister of Canada in the next federal election and he kills the carbon tax, would you kill the carbon tax here in British Columbia? Yes or no? Yes. You would just kill it? Yes. Uh, Where would you find the revenue? Next year, the carbon tax is expected to hit almost $3 billion in revenue, actually a little bit over $3 billion in revenue for the provincial government. You still have significant health care demands. You have significant demands on post-secondary and primary education. Where would you find the $3 billion? Well,
1: first of all, it's an excellent question. First of all, you want to get it by growing the economy growing the economy by having the private sector grow, having the confidence to know that this is a place you want to invest dollars, create jobs, build futures, raise a family. And what's happening now is we've had 29 new or increased taxes under this NDP government. And I think it's really important for your listeners to know this. Forget what I say. Just look at the results. We've become, whether we like it or not, the media has reported this, the most unaffordable province in the entire country. Mm -hmm. We have the highest home prices in North America. The highest rents in Canada, the highest fuel taxes in North America. Mm-hmm. These are not good results, and they're the results of governments constantly adding more costs onto taxpayers, uh, whether they do it directly or indirectly. So, what do I do? I say, let's grow the economy, reduce the cost for British Columbians. We can do that. We've done it before. Let's do it again. Keep the you know so families can feel like they've got some extra dollars to go out and and guess what they do? They spend it. They go out and they buy cars and they'll go out for family dinners, and we get that back in the taxes in a growing economy. So we can't lose sight of that reality. This government, frankly, has lost the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: final question. Uh, the, it was, the carbon tax was brought in under Gordon Campbell in 2008, as you said. Uh, you now said if uh, the federal government kills it, you would kill the carbon tax here in British Columbia. Is that safe to say that it was probably a mistake to, to, to head in this direction in the first place?
1: No, because I actually would argue that the carbon tax was very effective, especially in the early years before this government started really cranking it up. You know, we had public support; uh, we were getting emissions reductions. Uh, the New York Times wrote about it and said, "Yes, they." You know, there's there's an example of a success that can work. But remember, any time you do these kind of things, you have to do it in the context of. What can people afford? You have to bring the public along with you. You can't just say, okay, that's it. We're not going to make it a tax shift anymore, as the NDP did. We're going to now take it all into the province and take that. And then we're going to keep cranking it up on you and pretend that we're going to give you these tiny rebates that don't come close to the net cost that it's costing you and your family and pretend that that's somehow solving the problems. It's not. And the public's caught on to that, and they're not going to support it anymore. The original carbon tax, I would argue, made sense. It was fair, it was balanced, it was not unreasonable, and we enjoyed public support for doing it. I think where we've ended up today, as I said earlier, governments have lost the plot, and we've got to get back to saying to British Columbians, we're going to do big, great things for the climate, and we will. I can't wait till we roll out our climate policy. But on the other hand, we've got to make sure that it's not on the back of the uh, citizens of this province that are seeing continued growth in emissions while they're continuing to pay. Uh, unaffordable amounts of tax.
0: Kevin Falcon, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me, Uh Jeff.
0: Hey, welcome back to the show. As we continue with our series, The Next Million, the series airs every Tuesday and Thursday at 4 p.m. We've been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million people, and then it is expected it will hit 3.8 million by 2050. Now, how we accommodate these new residents, how we work, how we live, how we plan in a region with a million more people, that's the question we're asking. Uh, later this week, we'll, we'll look at how we move another million people with Translink City Kevin Quinn, dropping by. But today we want to look at how we should be governed. Now, currently, Metro Vancouver is home to 21 municipalities, one electoral area, and one Treaty First Nation located in the in, in the uh, city. Based on the 2021 census, largest city, of course, is Vancouver, 663,000 people. 75% of us live in the suburbs. The second largest city is Surrey, with 568,000. I'm sure you're asking, what's the smallest one? Village of Belkara, 687 residents based on the 2021 census. Now, each municipality has its own council, its mayor, its staff, police chief and fire chiefs, while the region mostly takes care of other uh, regional-level urban planning and utility services and transportation. And also, there's four separate corporate entities, Metro Vancouver Regional District, Greater Vancouver Sewage and Drainage District, Greater Vancouver Water District, Metro Vancouver Housing Corporation. Uh, Then, of course, there's a senior level of government in Victoria. Many say we live in a balkanized governance structure in this city of ours, uh, and we we can't make big and timely decisions. Well, joining me now to discuss the issue is someone who has worked with many local governments – in her time in Victoria, of course, Christy Clark is the former Premier of B.C., and she joins us now. Ms. Clark, thank you for joining us. Nice to
2: be here, Jazz. I like your swishy new studio. Oh, well, thank you. Things it's... have improved since I left. <laughs> <Have> they? <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty good, weren't they? It was pretty good. You know, it was a great place to work. Yeah, I loved good. I love talking to our listeners on the radio, but... Um, you know, you've just upgraded the facilities a little. <laughs> it looks feels good in here. It's,
0: it's a nice little place. A great little view from the 21st floor. Well, let's talk a little bit about governance here. Um, and I want to just, with that longer intro, I just want to set the scene for for our listeners. Uh, does the present governance structure work for
2: us here uh, in the Lower Mainland in your mind? I think it has over the years when we were smaller, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, you know, when you look forward to the next million, as as you say, I don't see how it's going to continue to work. I don't know how, I mean, the problem, when I was in government, part of the problem that we all recognized was, you've got tons of municipal governments, you've got tons of municipal bureaucracy, you've got school boards that are separate, you've got that too, Mm -hmm. and then you've got TransLink, you've got uh, Metro Vancouver, you've got all of these other layers on top of the municipal governments, and the... In many cases, the responsibility for who's doing what isn't even really clear. But I just like, you know, for me, a government's job is to enable economic growth so that everybody can have a job, have a lot of money to take home, you know, hopefully as much as they possibly can. And then they can look after their families. That's really government's Mm -hmm. job. I mean, in addition to looking after health care and education. Well, you can't create economic growth in this kind of a governance structure where really you've got so many people planning mm-hmm. that nobody's planning.
0: Ah, okay. So it, it, everybody's sort of doing the same thing, but there isn't a collective will to move the whole region moving forward.
2: Well, well think about, I think about it this way. So if you are, if you want to create economic growth, all right, what do you need? You need ports, you need airports, you need uh, roads and bridges and then what you end up, you, you end up with all of that getting horse traded between municipalities. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants them. Everybody else wants somebody to have them. Then it gets done at another level of government. Then the province gets in. Then the feds get in. Yeah, yeah. And, and you end up with things just going glacially slow and. I don't know how we are going to really consider ourselves a global city mm-hmm. if we don't find ways to rationalize that so we can keep up.
0: So do you think amalgamation uh, is, is the answer now? As I said, 21 municipalities, 23 sort of governing regions when you take uh, Tawas and First Nation and, and, and the one electoral area. And I was doing the math here, and I'm just, to the folks in North Shore, I don't mean to pick on you, but I'm going to pick on you just a little bit. When we talk about the amalgamation, you've got, the nor- in the North Shore alone, you've got Lions Bay you got Bowen Island, you got North Van City, North Van District, and West Vancouver. Uh, that's a total combined population of 201,000. That's roughly the population of Richmond, right? Why could that not be one region? I mean, do we need to think about amalgamation? Maybe not one city, but maybe four to six municipalities
2: instead of 21? You know why governments don't think about amalgamation, provincial governments? It's because it is makes so many people so unhappy. And you know you so take the north shore right yeah. a few new democrat ridings few uh BC United writings now, mm-hmm. maybe some conservative writings in the future. Nobody wants to take on that fight and you know, potentially lose it because you just make everybody mad. So we just kinda carry on. Mm-hmm. But absolutely jazz. I mean, I used to represent Port Moody mm-hmm. and we had I had Port Moody, Anmore, and Belcarra. So you didn't name Anmore, which is a lovely little village yes. as well. Yeah. But I mean there's no reason that those couldn't be couldn't be um amalgamated as well. So, you know, why do we need three police forces and three, you don't have this in Port Moody, but three different fire departments. I just don't think you do. And I don't think it works in everybody's interests when we are completely, when we're working against each other. So let me give you another example. Mm -hmm. I think on, like on trade, for example, we should have a whole regional strategy on trying to attract investment to our region so that we can trade with the world. We can make the most of it. Where are the ports going to be? Where are the Mm -hmm. roads going to be? And Nobody's thinking about that. I mean, I know Surrey's thinking about it. I know Vancouver's thinking about it separately. I know that other places are doing their thing. Mm -hmm. But it really can't be done except together. And if it's done together, it can be done rationally. It can be done a lot more quickly. Mm -hmm. And you can get out there and really attract economic growth. And I can tell you, Metro Vancouver ain't doing it. And neither is TransLink. And neither are any of those regional bodies. Mm -hmm. They think about building things but they don't think about the strategy behind building things. So in regards to just the the governance structure, I had Kirk
0: LaPointe in from Business in Vancouver a few weeks ago, and in one of his columns he was talking about a, a regional government, actually voting for a regional government. Some folks said, look, ah, another level of government. Well, one would argue we already have it. And shouldn't we be demanding accountability from those people that you actually elect specific for those regional jobs? Uh, is that one way to look at it? That we maybe have a, a folks like let's say ten people who run regional government. It's a powerful position. We will elect you as a region rather than these mayors and councillors going on committees and
2: boards. And but there's not really much accountability there. There, there is zero accountability there. <laughs> I mean, does anybody know who's governing us at Metro Vancouver? Who's governing would, us at TransLink? No, I would know because I have to cover them, but only in the political side. Like I was thinking
0: about this. If you talk the to top five public servants at Metro Vancouver, I would be struggling to give you those names. Probably 300 of us probably would know in this entire region of 2.8 million
2: people. And yet they have such a powerful position. Well, but go look at your tax who... bill. Yeah. You look at your tax bill and see how much you're paying for those level of coverage. That's when I really think about it, Chaz. I open up my property tax and I go, what? Yeah. Who is making these decisions? And you know what? They need the money to do this stuff. Yeah. But I'd sure like to be able to choose who is doing that and I don't. And if, you know, when, when you see the horse trading that goes on between local levels of government about who gets the big job mm-hmm. and the amount of money that they make to get those jobs, when they get those jobs, if you're a mayor that takes over as the chair of TransLake or the chair of Metro Vancouver, yeah. I don't think people would like it if they really got in and saw the guts of how that works. So in answer to your question, I think there are two ways you could think about it. One is the way Toronto and Montreal have done it, which was hugely controversial. But, you know, when Toronto became one big city, Mm -hmm. it made Toronto's got a lot richer, started doing a lot better. And it's the economic engine of Canada now, really. And partly it's because they've simplified how to get things done through amalgamation. Mm -hmm. The other is the way that Kirk Kirk LaPointe talked about. And I think, you know, if we can kind of, you'd have to be real careful about how you broke up, uh, you decided who was going to be responsible for what. Mm -hmm. But, boy, I sure would like to be able to elect a regional level of government if I can't have a big city, a regional level of government that is going to make the big decisions for me, then I would know that this wasn't being done piecemeal, mm-hmm. that we were working together to try and become a global city. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to former Premier
0: Christy Clark. We're talking about governing uh, the metro Vancouver area in context of Victoria as well. Uh, when we add another million new residents to Vancouver, that's a projection by 2050. Uh, for this region, give us a call on the open line. We'd love to hear from you, whether or not you support the idea of amalgamation, or how do we make governance better so we can uh, respond to the needs of citizens, whether it be your roads, your bridges, and many other pieces of infrastructure as well. Uh, let's go to Adam in Langley. Hi, Adam. Hey, Jazz. Uh,
3: thanks for taking the call. So I, um, I'm from Hamilton, Ontario, and we followed suit with Toronto with amalgamating our mm-hmm. uh, suburbs into the into the city i'm i'm pro amalgamation the only trick would be suburbs tend to have to carry more of the financial gain because the downtown cores and stuff typically are a little lower income but then on the flip side um from voting power you know they don't always represent the needs of the city in the downtown bike, bike lanes bus lanes and if you remember rob ford mayor of toronto that was the whole controversy with him is that the suburbs have essentially voted him in and the downtown core hated them. So it can create a real divisiveness between the areas. But overall, I think it's a, a, a
0: net positive. Adam, thank you for uh, sharing uh, your comments. And I don't think it'd be any different here. 75% of us live in the burbs. There is, I guess we could describe ourselves, and I'm broadly generalizing, of course, economic voters probably, uh, the bridge and tunnel folks uh, compared to some of the other needs that folks want. But it goes back to your point, you're forced to think like a region. Right. yeah
2: right yeah well, I mean, think about Massey Bridge, ten lanes It was supposed to be vast, badly needed in order mm-hmm. to fight climate change and a whole bunch of other things. Every, but people in the burbs really wanted it, except it was the people on the other side of the burbs on the other side of the river who really wanted it, mm-hmm. and then even richmond didn 't wasn 't that interested in it so here was a huge, a great regional um, economic development tool for mm-hmm. us. It was going to fight climate change. We needed to make a provincial government investment in it. And then the, the incoming government cancelled it because it wasn't popular with some of the voters in some cities. And that is and always the, the problem. And the mayor's council,
0: right? Some of the and, mayors. Yes. Yeah. Right? And, and they weren't elected either. But I, do you worry about that, though? I mean, that's a great example of where we sometimes politicize infrastructure. Like we, we fight over crosswalks these days, never mind other things. But we have as a co- country, like even today, uh, they completed the uh, Coastal gas link uh, natural gas line. They actually connected it to Kitimat for the first time, right? Amazing. That's a little thing to do with you, I'm sure. I think you can recall <laughs> the LNG file. We'll, put, we'll talk about that another day. But we have politicized that to the point there was vandalism, over a million dollars. We've been fighting over TMX. We fight over site C, we fight over bridges. I mean, that's part of the issue. Maybe it's a national issue, but even regionally here, it hinders us at the end of the day.
2: It does. But that's what leadership is about, though, Jazz. I mean, I just, you know, one of the reasons we need to elect good people is because leaders decide they're going to do something and try and get it done, despite the obstacles that protesters and the, and really the vocal minority puts in the way. We've got to just keep moving with a bigger picture of the future in our minds and i don't think we've got lots of politicians who do that in the country right now
0: hmm. all right let's go to sean in north vancouver hi sean
2: hi
3: Jazz. hi christy um as a police officer for the last 24 years i follow national security public safety um suggestions that uh, all the balkanized police departments in the lower mainland uh, amalgamate and i always thought well if amalgamation is such a good idea let the municipalities do it first, and we'll just have to follow. Yet, no one seems to be interested
2: in giving up their empire or the kingdom.
0: <laughs> Thanks for your call, uh, Shawnee. Oh, Shawnee a good point.
2: Okay, I've got a story to tell, Jazz. Yeah. When we were, when I was in government, we yeah. went through a process to decide if we could create a re, we could create a provincial police force. Okay, and you know we weren't happy with the RCMP at the time, and we thought you know we should do a, I. We, we had to abandon the idea because we just thought, I realized, I can't get into a three-year fight with every single mayor in the Lower Mainland when we want to build LNG and Site C and economic growth and all the other things that we wanted to do. It is really hard to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think one of the things Sean's identified is mayors do like to be able to run their police force. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a ton of sense all the time to do that. I yeah. think, you know, I mean, I think Vancouver's police force is really, really good. It's a great example of an independent police force, but, you know, maybe the whole region could be thinking about... But but I think, in regards to our conversation, we're getting there.
0: The fact that we're having this conversation, and I think even in polling, I think the public is more open to thinking like a region. Amalgamation may not be the right word, but I think Sean is right. Once the political class get their act together... Then we can work about we we'll talk about the policing and we can talk about firefighting and all the and selling the region collectively is one
2: there is another reason though too jazz that Sean didn't talk about that stands in the way of amalgamation of fire departments in particular but yeah. policing as well as long as the bargaining unit for each of those is separate and they're bargaining directly with their municipality you I mean, it almost always ends in a better outcome for the for the unions in those mm. cases, and that's a you know that's a problem, right? It's a problem in some you know school districts. It was it was a problem for a long time. Um, when you have a bigger bargaining unit and you ha- you're bargaining with a bigger organization at the other side, you're probably going to get a better deal for taxpayers. I'm sorry, Sean.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's an ongoing issue, it really is. Uh, thank you so much for dropping by.
2: It was so nice to see you, and great to be back here.
0: Welcome back to the show. Well, British Columbia has plans to make Holocaust education mandatory for high school students with uh, an addition to grade 10 curriculum coming in 2025. Premier David Eby announced the measure uh, this week uh, on Monday uh, at the Jewish Community Centre of Greater Vancouver. Take a listen.
3: Our government is committing that we will make Holocaust education mandatory in British Columbia for every student in grade 10. And I want to reassure you that your provincial government supports the Jewish community here in British Columbia. It's about the amazing housing that you're building. It's about the incredible community centre that you have. And it's about supporting you in challenging times like this. And it's about making sure that the voices of Holocaust survivors are always heard and
0: understood by British Columbians going forward. That was Premier David Eby speaking uh, earlier uh, this week. Joining me now is Ezra Shanken, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver. Ezra, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jess. Uh, first and foremost, your thoughts on the announcement uh, on Monday by Premier David Eby. Uh, I was a little surprised in the sense, look, I'm glad they made the announcement. I, I always felt that probably there would have been uh, education at the grade 10 level when it comes to the Holocaust. Uh, walk me through a little bit just in regards to the history and and, and consulting with the provincial government and moving forward on this project.
1: No,
4: it's a great question, Jess. I think that uh, a lot of people were surprised to hear that it's actually not mandatory. Uh, Right now it's been optional. Uh, Some schools have taken advantage of it. Some schools haven't taken advantage of it. Uh, We praise the schools that have taken advantage of it. Our Holocaust Education Center has been engaging high school students about 25,000 a year. Making it mandatory is a statement about the importance that it should have in the learning process, of our students and i think that it's actually a a beautiful testament to the hard work of survivors over the years that have been pushing for this uh and uh, obviously selena robinson and uh you know, has, has been a big busher and, and the premier himself was a big believer along with us in really seeing this be cemented in there, that it's not an option anymore. It's now going to be mandatory. We really need every student learning about the Holocaust and learning the lessons of the Holocaust. Deeply
0: important to this mm-hmm. moment. hmm Now, there have been many um, attacks uh, when it comes to culture and race on different different mm-hmm. communities uh, in our province, in our city, uh, But I, and there's been certainly, uh, you know, recent death threats against two Jewish women. at a There was at a peaceful vigil. There was vandalism at a rabbi's home in Surrey. And you know, many communities, as I said, deal with issues of racism uh, and hate. But when you look at the numbers, there is a significant amount. I'm not sure if it's the majority. It might be the majority. Significant amount are directed at the Jewish community. Uh, when, you, when you focus on specific communities, they are a smaller portion of our broader population, but a good chunk of that hate is directed at the Jewish community.
3: Yeah,
4: I often say we're we're at the top of some unenviable lists. We don't want to be on the top of these lists. But often we are as a religious group, sometimes as a cultural group, but there are many groups across our province and across the country. Our friends in the Muslim community, our friends in the Chinese-Canadian community, other minority groups have, have uh, you know, experienced the, the kind of challenges that, that we're talking about. I think that's actually why it's so important that we start to make mandatory these types of learning within curriculum structures, because education is ultimately the only way weapon that we have to help to combat that kind of hate and intolerance within our society. Uh,
0: speak to me a little bit about uh, what the Premier announced uh, on Monday. We are talking about mm-hmm. dealing with and anti-Semitism and hate. Um, and then what is happening today in Israel? Uh, how is the mm-hmm. community itself uh, uh, dealing with this after about 20 plus days now in regards to the initial shock and then just trying to mm-hmm understand, comprehend, and cope with all that is happening
4: well, I think it was it was deeply meaningful for this uh, for this announcement to be made right now because obviously the the community has has felt a great deal of uh, unease in this time. I think that there has been you know challenges that the community has been going through uh, stemming from the attacks on October seventh uh, and you know this is this is in many ways a chance for our community to come together and recommit ourselves to what it is that we know are our greatest tactics in creating a safer society, not just for us, but for so many other groups across the province. And that's that's improving our educational system and our educational offering and really, really strengthening the, the uh, Holocaust education inside inside our schools, following along with Ontario, who kind of led the way on this. We're the second province, uh, and I'm very proud of that, um, in the country to uh, bring this on board.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you another question in regards to, mm-hmm. you were on the show uh, uh, right after the attacks in,
2: mm-hmm. in Israel,
0: uh, and, and I've been thinking about what to think and how to think. And because there's so many different Mm -hmm. elements, so many different debates and conversations, the ones that are directly related to what is happening on the ground today and others are Mm -hmm. a broader broader conversation, some of them based on history and politics and all those things. You know, tell me if I am wrong here, walk me through this. It's just a conversation I think we should have. I think it's okay to say what Hamas did was absolutely appalling and wrong. And Israel has a right to push back Fight back for their existence. Israel has a right to exist. Hamas does not represent Palestinian people. Sometimes Israeli policies, Israeli government policies, have not been in favor, have not been favorable towards Palestinians. and sometimes they haven't been treated well by government policies. Is it fair to say everything I've just said? We, you can believe in all of that in Absolutely. regards to this conversation.
4: I, I, I... Yeah, you know, like we talked about, Jez, in our first conversation, even in the rawest of moments, um, I was very comfortable saying that I consider myself pro-Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Um, I want a a sovereign two-state solution for the Palestinians. I want peace and security in the region. I want prosperity for them and their children and their children's children. I think that, you know... We're in a difficult part of the journey right now, and we have to recognize that, friends. We're in a difficult part of the journey. But we have to recognize that this is exactly where Hamas wants us to be. Hamas wants us to question our resolve, that if we question our resolve, they stay in power. Therefore, the Palestinians continue to live under the thumb of a genocidal terrorist regime. Their future is is in jeopardy, and and there's no prosperity, no opportunity for them. They continue to live in the terrible conditions that they've lived in all along. I believe that we have to stand strong as a community and say we can be pro-Palestinian and anti-Hamas. We can say Hamas is not good for the Palestinians. Palestinians have been dying all, all, all around the region. I think we need to speak up around that. And I think we need to give the opportunity to remove Hamas from the picture and see a brighter future for Palestinians moving forward.
0: Ezra, uh, this is a very complex issue. I always love having you on this show, and I really appreciate um, uh, your, your comments, your thoughts, and your humanity. Thank you so much.
4: No, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you, Jeff.
0: Well, there are over thirty-four thousand stratas in British Columbia, and starting tomorrow, the BC government is ushering in changes it says will help protect owners in strata developments at risk of higher insurance costs uh, due to neglected maintenance needs. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the changes in regulations for BC stratas as of tomorrow is Tony Gioventu, executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association. Tony, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's a pleasure, Chaz. So walk me through this. Uh, how much of an impact do you think this will have on uh, stratas broadly in British Columbia?
3: Well, the regulation change that occurs on uh, November 1st, being tomorrow, is going to require that all strata corporations must contribute a minimum of 10% of their annual operating budget to their contingency fund. So for the most part, I think this is a general practice of many strata corporations across the province, and many of them are also contributing more than that because they're planning for the future. Mm-hmm. However, I think a lot of the smaller strata corporations who've always kept their budgets to the minimum and kept their contingency fees to the minimum, this is where we're probably going to see the greatest impact.
0: So what drove this for the government to bring in legislation for this to move ahead?
3: well the concern is of course that people are really trying to reduce their costs um, with respect to their strategies and their operating of the buildings but it's having a really negative effect because when they're coming up to emergencies or major construction <coughs> or major repairs um, what's happening is they have no reserves left and we've seen people use the reserves for emergencies and for significant insurance deductibles and other things that aren't about planning for the future. So 10% is really not a lot when you're looking at your annual operating budget, but the minimum 10% that applies now to all strata corporations makes this calculation in this formula very simple. Um,
0: in re- broadly speaking, uh, when it comes to uh, condominium owners, I mean, you know, 25 years ago, we could argue a significant amount of society is living in single family homes, and it's still a pretty large number. But we all know where the trends are. Single-family homes are not going to be the future in regards to what we build, mostly. Um, The focus is on condominiums and townhouses. What are the issues? And a lot of those are going to be, of course, under strata. What are some of the challenges and issues your organization is seeing moving forward that you think the province will need to start addressing?
3: Well, I think that the greatest challenge all of these communities face is whether they're going to be Proactive on their planning for maintenance, renewals, repairs, and financial planning, or whether they're going to be reactive when an emergency arises. And this this is where the economics of strata living really comes in to either be really a benefit for owners or a real liability. And the difficulty we see on typical things like a roofing replacement, if you wait till the roof on your building leaks, you're going to spend, in addition to damages and emergency costs and everything else associated, 30 to 50% more in cost to be able to deal with that problem as opposed to proactively dealing with the repairs before they leak. You know, we get into a a habit of just simply responding to the next crisis that comes along, but economically, it just costs everyone so much more. So I think that's the, the greatest issue that everybody's facing is, How do we transform from a reactive type behavior into a proactive behavior? And and increasing the amount that we put into our contingency is certainly a start towards that, but also make sure that everybody gets their depreciation report, looks at it closely, and reviews it every year so they know when the next big projects are coming up.
0: Uh, Can government uh, push uh, push these stratas in regards to um, making those repairs and being more proactive with those repairs, as you said, beyond the fact that you have to have the contingencies, it can't force these people to be a bit more proactive in regards to how they address uh, some of the challenges for their respective buildings. What, is there any legislation government can bring back in regards to policy that can drive some of the things that you're talking about?
3: Yeah, not really. <laughs> it's yeah. really about human behavior, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, like That's the challenge. And when you get a collective group of people living in a complex, you're going to have everyone, every range of person from those who have great jobs and who are affluent to those who are probably just scraping by and those on fixed incomes. And so, you know, so we have this real collision and, you know, we have some jurisdictions in the world. Um, Ontario is an example and Queensland and Australia is an example where they have minimum formulas of how you're planning your long-term renewals and your you know through your reserve funds or through your contingencies how you're planning for those but you know the difficulty with that is um they started quite a long time ago in doing that we're basically trying to reverse the process of literally 60 years of behavior and mm-hmm. and that's just not an easy thing to do at this point in history
0: mm-hmm. now one of the other things uh that we've spent a lot of time talking about, is short-term rentals. Uh, There's been different types of rental restrictions that have been implemented, and there are 34,000 strata corporations in our province. Uh, Are there challenges that you're hearing about in regards to rental restrictions, other rules uh, that could create more work for strata councils and challenges that are there?
3: Well, rental restriction bylaws for Tenants that are 30 days or more, and under the Residential Tenancy Act, no longer apply. So we do have rentals, full-time rentals, but they're not the issue. Um, we have great tenants who live in buildings, who even sit on strata councils, who play a good role in their communities. They're good for investors. They're long-term, sustainable. But the the challenge with short-term accommodations is that it creates a very high level of transiency and use in your buildings there are security issues that come up with it there the the investors generally for short-term accommodations don't take an interest in their buildings Um, that's one of the very common complaints that we get they tend to abandon their investments other than the short-term accommodation of coming and going Uh, And the people who remain in the properties are they're the ones left trying to manage. And if you're in a smaller strata of under 50 units, you probably don't have a property manager. There just simply aren't enough of them available in the province, and it's not an affordable service for your strata. And we end up with a small group of individuals having to manage the day-to-day life of the strata corporation, Mm -hmm. but now they're having to deal later on with all of the issues that come along with short-term accommodations, and and it's a significant problem. You know, we have security breaches, we have bylaw violations, and then this group of individuals who's volunteered their time to take care of everybody's property are trying to deal with their operations of, of, of the property without the support of the investors, and that's a problem.
0: Yeah. Tony, uh, thank you so much for your time. They really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Let's revisit our lead story today. As many of you heard late last week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau surprised many, uh, saying that Ottawa pause the federal carbon tax on home heating oil in Atlantic Canada, Ontario and the Prairie Provinces. Um, the Trudeau's government's uh, carbon tax was being blamed for significant unhappiness in the Atlantic Provinces, where the uh, federal policy was introduced earlier this year to replace a patchwork of inconsistent uh, provincial policies. Of course, the the repercussions from that announcement uh, late uh, Thursday last week are profound, and since then it's driven debate in our province and many other provinces as well. The BC NDP is now facing pressure to reduce the provincial uh, carbon tax. Uh, today, Kevin Falcon, leader of the BC United, said he would eliminate the provincial fuel tax, currently at about 15%, 15 cents per litre on gasoline and diesel, and remove the carbon tax on all home heating fuels. He was on this show at 3 o'clock. Take a listen to his comments. I want to confirm this from you at this point. If Pierre Polyev is elected Prime Minister of Canada in the next federal election and he kills the carbon tax, would you kill the carbon tax here in British Columbia? Yes or no? Yes. You would just kill it?
1: Yes. The carbon tax was very effective, especially in the early years before this government started really cranking it up. You know, we had public support. Uh, We were getting emissions reductions. Uh, the New York Times wrote about it and said, "Yes, they, you know, there's there's an example of a success that can work." But remember, anytime you do these kind of things, you have to do it in the context of what can people afford. You have to bring the public along with you. You can't just say, "Okay, that's it. We're not going to make it a tax shift anymore," as the NDP did. We're going to now take it all into the province and take that, view, and then we're going to keep cranking it up on you and pretend that we're going to give you these tiny rebates that don't come close to the net cost that it's costing you and your family and pretend that that's somehow solving the problem. It's not.
0: That's Kevin Falcon, BC United leader, announcing his carbon plan uh, today. Now, what wasn't answered, and I did ask him that question, it's not in that soundbite there, was how do you replace the revenue that if he killed the carbon tax next year, next year in this province alone, revenue from the carbon tax for the provincial government would be just around $3 billion. That's with a B, folks. Um, and we still have uh, healthcare costs that always uh, go up, uh, education costs, social service costs, post-secondary education costs. That's a, a giant hole in the provincial budget, and I'm not yet convinced how we're going to replace that. Now, of course, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, of course, wanting to make sure he can solidify his support in Atlantic Canada, making the announcement in and around the exemptions for the carbon tax. Well, today he was asked if he plans to expand carbon pricing exemptions. Take a listen. There will absolutely not be any other carve-outs or suspensions of the price on pollution.
4: This is designed to phase out home heating oil the way we made a decision to phase out coal. Now when we decided to phase out coal as a country, um, there were provinces that had long gone from coal that didn't help them at all that we were phasing out coal because they'd already done it. Others needed to step uh, step up to do it. This is specifically about ending the use of home heating oil which is more polluting, more
0: expensive and impacts low-income Canadians to a greater degree. So it's quite the debate, uh, and, and I want to say this once again, uh, the exemption that Prime Minister Trudeau talked about last week impacts Atlantic Canada, Ontario, and the Prairie Provinces. We have our own carbon policy here, uh, although, as I said, the uh, provincial government may be forced to do something just because every other region in the country is going to have an exemption when it comes to heat, home heating oil. And home heating oil here in British Columbia represents 1.8% of people who use different varieties of energy. So it's a very small amount of folks, about thirty to 35,000 households. Not a huge amount, but certainly the message is clear. Nobody expected a, a government that supports carbon and carbon policy uh, to now provide exemptions. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the politics behind the carbon tax is Ujul Dasan, who's a former Premier of BC. Ujul, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. Uh, climate change is real. We all agree on that. The majority of us, I think, agree on that. Yet we're all struggling to deal with how we fight and deal with climate change, particularly on the government level, on the provincial level, the federal level, some would even argue on the municipal level. How do, you, how, how do you read all this in regards to the federal announcement, the provincial repercussions? How do you see this?
5: Well, I mean, we're at an impasse. I mean, if Pierre Polyev win, wins next time, he'll cancel the carbon tax. Mr. Trudeau has already created a big dent in that policy itself with the carve-outs um on home heating oil and in fact uh, british columbians should feel somewhat discriminated against <laughs> in terms of in terms of <laughs> the leadership the <laughs> you know i mean you don't show leadership by saying we're going to treat different provinces differently that is absolutely a lack of leadership in a country like ours and um and you know the, i think that both the political parties are major political parties are simply looking um uh, to their 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 votes in the next election Uh, We know from polling that the um, uh, voters that support the Conservatives, generally speaking, dislike the carbon tax. Um, And similarly, those that support the NDP or the Liberals uh, support the carbon tax. Uh, So you have uh, essentially people lined up um, accordingly. And and that really, in a country like ours, uh, can't work. Because if um, one government comes in and brings in a policy and the other government comes in and throws the policy out, how do we make progress? I mean, in times like this, what you really need is a genuine national conversation about whether or not what we're doing is working and whether or not what we're doing is actually too expensive to afford as well. I mean, you're saying uh, that, that carbon tax um, produces uh, $3 billion for B.C., it wasn 't supposed to do that, was it?
0: No not so it was supposed
5: to be it was supposed to be neutral and um, you know and, and therefore, I think that those are big issues that people need to discuss, and the only way they can discuss that is if if people show some leadership and say you know i 'm going to bring the country together, perhaps it 's time for a national conversation on this where you have people from all over the country being invited by the Prime Minister for a big uh, think tank kind of a, a big discussion a big debate um, instead what you have is both parties are dug in in their positions and uh, and that's not good for the country that's not leadership
0: mm-hmm. um, the core issue of the carbon tax one would argue is to change behavior uh, and, and when i look at it from afar is it changing behavior when i see exxon and chevron in the last two weeks have announced i think Per, individual purchases of about $120 billion, just under that, where they've purchased other fossil fuel companies. I think this case is natural gas. They're doubling down on fossil fuels, basically saying our consumption patterns are still going to rely on fossil fuels. You have General Motors um, that said they were going to sell 400,000 EVs by mid 2024 that what they're saying is people are still buying evs but what's happening is those who can afford seventy thousand dollar vehicles have bought those vehicles and then that next generation of buyer uh is much more sensitive in regards to its their wallet and they don't buy sixty seventy thousand dollar vehicles they're gonna have to drive down costs but they're not gonna be able to meet their targets it looks like we've hit the wall somewhere along the way in regards to people's affordability and how fast people are willing to change their behavior and one could argue the carbon tax may not be the right thing to do, or maybe we aren't, it isn't changing behavior That's enough for us to be ch- expecting people to ch- pay more and more every single year till 2030, because it is going up significantly as well.
5: Well, it isn't changing the behavior very much. I mean, we we know that carbon tax isn't working as well as it should, as uh, well as people said it would. Um, And the affordability issue is very real for people. I mean, how many people can afford $70,000 vehicles? Um, And the other issue, of course, is that even the electric vehicles and the kind of inputs they have uh, with respect to the minerals and the like, um, you know, um, I understand their footprint is big enough um, that if you drive them for 15 or 20 years, that simply makes up for the footprint they caused. And then you, and then you have the issue of electricity. Um, eventually, uh, that may go up as well in the charging facilities. All those issues are very real, and we're not really having a discussion. Mm-hmm. We're not having a national discussion. We're not having a provincial discussion in this province or in any other province, and that really isn't leadership.
0: Is part of the challenge with um, that it, it's it's because I mean I, you know depending on what study you look at generally it's assumed that it took about you know seventy five years for oil to surpass coal as the major energy source in this world and our transition to a greener economy hopefully will be a lot faster but we can only move as fast as technology allows. We can only move as fast as behavior allows, and we can only move as fast as people's uh, finances allow, and that we're moving just too quickly in this energy transition.
5: Well, we we are, and I think that the, and the current economic situation with the interest rates is making everybody's life harder,
3: mm-hmm. particularly
5: those that can afford. Not afford to buy those kinds of cars and those kinds of expensive things that they need to do to bring our carbon footprint down. So, you know, it, it, over, overall, I mean, people are suffering and the political parties are dug in in their positions and there isn't much thoughtful discussion about these issues beyond partisanship. What you need on issues like this. Um, you know, environmental issues, uh, carbon footprint issues. Mm-hmm. What you need is a discussion that's honest, that's nonpartisan, that's principle based. And, and, you know, I don't believe we've had that for a long time in this country on this particular issue. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, is it impossible in this polarized environment to have that conversation?
5: It's impossible to have it two years before the election or a year before the election. You can do it if you if you begin a new election cycle and you go in and you win the election and you say, "You know we're going to have a national uh, discussion, a national conversation for this, for the next six months and then come up with policies that are designed for the future that is possible, but not at the tail end of the mandate
0: mm-hmm. well Jill, thank you for your time today I really appreciate it you're most welcome. Okay.